Welcome to uh, Star Talk All Stars. We are here live at the Explorers Club. Tonight we're going to be talking about the future of human spaceflight. I'm the host, Mike Massimino. I'm a former astronaut. I'm a professor at Columbia and uh, Columbia University and an advisor at the Intrepid Museum. And we have. Uh, Wonderful guests here. Maybe you're kind of my, the co-host of this, right? Yeah, I'm co-hosting. Okay. I have no qualifications except I'm a comedian and I have a podcast. <laughs> a comedian and you have a podcast and you, but you are, it says right here, you're a yeah. Star Talk veteran. We've done this before. Yeah, we've we done did this together show. I mean, a, I regularly co-host this show and the fact that they have me back again and again is a good sign. Right. And you're, you're responsible for adding uh, some humor to all of this. Yes. So we don't have to worry about being funny. No. The pressure's off. You're going to handle all that. In fact, I get so grumpy and weirded out when anybody else is funny around me. You're also the host of a podcast, Mave in America. Yes. Mave in America. It's a podcast about immigration to America. So mm -hmm. I myself, you know, I'm from Texas, but I... No, I'm not. <laughs> kidding. <laughs> I'm Irish. I'm an immigrant. I moved here almost four years ago. And I'm fascinated by people who make voyages and who travel and who set, leave one life behind to start a new one, which is kind of also what space exploration is turning into. Yes. And especially as we're going more into the future here, it will be more of that. Mm -hmm. We've been coming home so far. Mm -hmm. But who knows what's going to happen in the future. Yeah. And the name of your... It says, Maven America Immigration. IRL. So this IRL, am I the only one in the room who doesn't know what that is? Is that like some kid thing? You have to be under 40 years old to know what that is? I have no idea what that is. What is IRL? It's in real life. So immigration in real life. Yes. Yeah. Because I talk to, um, not simulations, I talk to actual immigrants. You do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Do we have any immigrants in the audience? Oh, so many. Wonderful. Cool. A lot of our science community here in America is, is um, made up of immigrants. Is that, is that right? Yeah. And so you've got plenty of them here for your podcast, too. I don't know. You can get some recruits. Yeah, maybe. All right. We also have Alan Stern, who is a planetary scientist, a principal investigator of the New Horizons mission to Pluto. And now you're the, you're the chairman of the Commercial Space Flight Federation as well. Is that is that like a full-time gig for you, or is that a... Something amongst your other duties. Uh, you know, as the board chair, everybody else does the honest work. So it's ah, not right. much effort. It's, uh, it's an honor. It's something I'm now in my second year of doing. It's the largest industry association for commercials. Space flight. Yeah. Well, we'll look forward to hearing more, more about that. Uh, thank you, Alan. Eric Whitaker, a Grammy award-winning composer, composed a piece called Deep Field, inspired entirely by the Hubble Space Telescope images. True story. All right, so as a, as a Hubble astronaut, I'm really glad, again, not only for, you know, for the astronomers that we didn't break the telescope, but also <laughs> now for the music world, because if we would have broke the telescope, you would have been out of luck. It wouldn't have been much of a composition, I would have A shorter piece. Yes. <laughs> um. Yeah, thrilled to be here, truly. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm really space nerd number one, so e even just sitting uh, on this panel is enough for me. I'll, I'll just sit here quietly and smile the whole time. <laughs> that won't work well for radio, but... Uh, okay, I'll giggle then. <laughs> okay, thank you, Eric. And Sandy Magnus, my friend, we've known each other a long time. Jeez, Sandy. I don't yeah. even want to say a long time. We were at Georgia Tech together, for heaven's sakes, right? Before we were selected as astronauts and we became astronauts together. Sandy uh, had three trips into space, and you kind of covered the gamut of things. You were at a space station assembly, and then you went back for a long duration, and then on the historic final shuttle mission was your, was your third and final 
flight into space. Yeah, and, and people ask me which one was the most favorite, and they're yeah. all my favorite for different reasons, so I can't pick a favorite. That was all spectacular. For all for different reasons, yeah. like? Well, the first one's special, as you know, because mm -hmm. it's the first one. The second yep. one was special because it was my long-duration mission, which is a completely different experience than just visiting mm -hmm. for a short yep. period of time. And the third one was special because it was the last shuttle mission, and yeah. that was a very special experience. Yeah, that was that was a big. That was really big. I mean, all of them, of course, were were important. But the ending of the shuttle program was uh, an emotional, historic thing. And you know, we were all, I guess, a part of it. But you certainly being on the on the shuttle, that was a. I think I would imagine a pretty special experience. It was. We were incredibly busy, but I think um, the four of us. There were that was a four person crew. Uh, we really wanted to make that mission all about the great celebration of all the great things that the shuttle accomplished over its three decades of service and bring the whole team along with us on that journey and that celebration. And I think we accomplished that, and I think that's probably what we're the most proud of. Our first segment, Maeve, is mm -hmm. uh, Humans in Space, Where to Next? Where to next? Where so, are we going next? So, like, where have we been already? Definitely the moon. Yep, yeah, yeah, that was a while ago, but and yes. Then, <laughs> and then the big one is, like, going to Mars, right? Well, we haven't been there yet, so yeah. that might be a next. Or right? maybe going back to the moon. Yeah. Or who knows where. What's your but, preference? But that's where we send people, right? Mm -hmm. My preference would be right now to go anywhere, but uh, yeah. personally. But uh, we can discuss that. I think there's, you know, there's Mars is, would be a great place, a little far away. Maybe yeah. the moon's a, maybe a more realistic goal. We'll, mm -hmm. we'll see. But there's also places where we send not just people, but spacecraft. So, Alan, I'm going to ask you about um, sending, uh, sending spacecraft far away from our planet. What are some of the things you need to worry about? Environmental conditions in spaceflight, comparing uh, in orbit, sending a spacecraft that far as opposed to what we have to do on Earth to keep things healthy. What are some of the things you need to consider when you're sending this, these spacecraft so far away? Well, you know, the United States has gotten very good over, over the years at uh, long distance exploration uh, robotic spaceflight, just like it's gotten very good at human spaceflight. And, uh, you know, we have, to, we have to design some spacecraft to go all the way into planet Mercury, where it's hot as a griddle, and all the way out to Pluto, where it's 40 degrees above absolute zero. We have to worry about micrometeorite strikes and about um, reliability, because these missions can last. New Horizons is a good example of a decade just to reach the target, and then it's showtime, and it better work. And so uh, we've gotten really good at the software side and the hardware side of, of reliability and a building spacecraft that are uh, capable of withstanding these extreme environments, including penetrating into the atmosphere of Jupiter, uh, landing on the surface of Titan, orbiting comets, uh, roving on Mars. And uh, we do it pretty flawlessly. It's very rare. Occasionally we'll make a mistake, but uh, uh, we have a really spectacular record of doing it well. And did they run into anything, because they're so far away, Like, did they run into anything that you, you weren't expecting? Like, was there, like, suddenly something you were like, oh, we didn't know it was going to be, like, that hot out there. There was going to be those little diamonds running around or whatever <laughs> happens. You know, in the early days, they did learn a lot of, a lot of lessons. Things like, a, you know, uh, that thermal blanket that you put on the spacecraft really ought to be equipped with a Kevlar micrometeorite shield. And now that's standard practice. But uh, Is Kevlar, like, the bulletproof? It's the bulletproof right? stuff, yeah. Same stuff. We use it on spacecraft. Uh, but I can't think of anything in recent years... Uh, We've learned a lot scientifically, but we haven't learned any hard lessons um, where we've had something fail because we didn't think far enough ahead in the engineering and prepare for it. 
hmm. which, which is really pretty amazing. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, because you know, our missions always seem to be running into something new that we didn't expect. And we, so the advantage we have is that an astronaut on the human missions, you, hopefully the astronaut can help fix whatever was unexpected, but you don't have that capability. You don't have that luxury when you're, when, you're, uh, with, when there's nobody around. You, things got to work. That's right. Or else people get really disappointed. They do, including people on the team uh, yeah. <laughs> who put it together. It's been years of their life putting it together. Um, we do upload new software and new capabilities on spacecraft, mm -hmm. and we, um, we use that to get around many of the types of problems, and we build in a lot of redundancy. But, you know, uh, when I was in graduate school, I remember I was an intern at Johnson Space Center where you and Sandy worked, and I went to the press conference before the very first shuttle mission. And uh, there was a reporter from ABC News named Jules Bergman. And he was, oh, yeah. He was probing at the mission commander, John Young. And he said, uh, uh, Commander Young, what about those tiles that come right off? And what about those main engines that blow up? What are you worried about? And Young looked him right in the eye and he said, I'm not worried about anything we've thought of. Yeah. And that's pretty much right. our philosophy in robotic <laughs> spaceflight, is make sure you've thought of everything. Yeah. A lot to think of, but hopefully you've thought of everything. But when you're thinking of things, like say, like, didn't the Voyager go out in the 70s or like the... Yeah, they both the launched 70s? in 1977. And now it's still like hurtling along. Yeah. So like the technology couldn't have even been that... Like, there's probably better technology like Instagram. Well, of there, there are... Definitely technological advancements in the newer spacecraft yeah. have uh, much more computing power, much better uh, spacecraft systems, much better sensors. But even back then, the engineering was so good that they built spacecraft that are still operating with nobody's, nobody's able to go up like Massimino did and repair it right. 40 years later. That's just stunning. Amazing. Yeah. American workmanship. All right, Sandy. Uh, you spent a lot of time in space. What, what's, what's your total amount of time in space? Do you, do you know? I think it's somewhere like 155 days or so 156 days or something like That's that. That's a pretty long time. So, you, yeah, so months of your life were spent up there. I moved to space. You moved to space. <laughs> I moved to space. <laughs> that must have been an brief period of time. Yeah. <laughs> were you responsible for jury duty? Every time I move, I'm afraid they're going to screw up my jury duty thing. I keep getting these notes. But you know, they probably wouldn't have excused me. <laughs> <laughs> I feel bad for the moving guys. You know, I have to say, like, I have four flights of stairs. You're like, <laughs> the ozone layer. <laughs> So at that time you spent, uh, tell us a little bit about some of the, the effects that are on the, on the human body, and not just that, but also on, on the psychological aspects of it. What, was it. what was it like for you spending that much time, and what, did, what were you concerned about from that part of it, both the, you know, the physical and the, the psychological part? How did, you, how did you keep yourself going? Well, you know, I, I really didn't have any concerns. I was really looking forward to it, because when you go up on a shuttle, as you know, we're so busy um, when you have a shuttle mission, and it's so scripted, and you have no downtime. So you really, you think you understand space when you, sorry, Mike, you think you understand space after you've had a shuttle mission, but you really don't until you get a chance to live there because you evolve to it at a whole nother level because it's your life. You have a, it's, think about the difference between going to Hawaii for two weeks and enjoying Hawaii or moving to Hawaii and actually understanding what it means to live on those islands so, so far away from everything. And, and that's really the difference between a short duration and a long duration. Now, when you, live, when you go into um, space and you're in a microgravity environment, after about two weeks, your bones start to naturally lose minerals and your muscles start to atrophy. So we have to exercise every day. And we've got really good exercise protocols. And I love to exercise, as you know. It's part of my Keep Myself Sane program. And um, following the protocols and doing the exercise that was required every day, which I did, 
I really didn't have any physiological changes that were noticeable when I came back. I basically had the same bone and muscle density as when I left. Could I ask you about like the role of like music and creativity and all of that when you're in space? Because we have this amazing composer with us who's like going from, you know, making music on Earth about you guys. So what role did it play in, in your life? You know, I we had music on the space station. I took some music up um, to play while I was what did working. What did you listen to? Um, you know, Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Oh, yeah, of I course. I love those Fantastic. Yeah. Especially with the views, it must have been uh, perfect, right? Yes, <laughs> and, and Enya and Lauren and McKinnon and... Um, Okay, so Abba, uh, Mamma Mia. <laughs> oh, seriously? <laughs> that's really this bouncy like music. Oh my gosh, it's that's just really, like the yeah. like the book. I can't believe it. <laughs> you know, energetic music. That, and it's so funny because I'd be up there, I have the music on. You have to keep it low enough so you can hear the ground when they call up. But I'd be up there, kind of dancing around. <laughs> so to Mission Control, they just see me up there moving this weirdly, bobbing and weaving. They have no idea what's going on because they can't hear the music, right? <laughs> it was really fun. But I would, I would be really excited. Um, you're you know you were talking earlier about how your music is you know you have this emotional imprint and you try and translate that it would be really interesting to see what would happen if you could look out the window oh, God. and take the, that emotional imprint and then turn that into music because I don't have that skill set right that that's not my thing and for someone who's creative like you kind of internally Oh my goodness, I think that would be spectacular. Sandy, let's figure out a way to make that yeah. happen, can't we? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's my biggest dream. You, you remember the movie Contact, right? And Jodie Foster says they should have sent a poet. They should have sent a poet. I think that all the time that, that I mean, actually, Mike, listening to you speak about it, you speak so poetically. So does John Grunsfeld, right? Like, it really translates. You can feel it in there. But there, there is something about artists who, they're, the, the whole brain makeup is about, uh, is, is collecting this and then communicating it back to someone. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think it'd be essential to, to, to have a, a mission that, that has artists included for that sole purpose. To, also, it would be great for public policy, wouldn't it? Yeah, I, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, it's another conversation maybe, but I just feel like we've gotten a bit, somehow space flight has become a little pedestrian, weirdly, right? And it's lost that wonder that... Well, the nice that, thing is we're on the verge of this commercial space flight revolution. We're going to have a lot more access to space for people like yourself, um, and not just artists, uh, but people of all walks of life. Initially, for suborbital quick views, spend an afternoon or, or less um, seeing the Earth from space, uh, but it won't be too long before uh, uh, orbital space travel and maybe even cislunar space travel is something that um, uh, media companies will put people in space to do Incredible. because they know that the, the result will be popular in communicating back to the billions of people on Earth who can't all go at first. And the interest is out there. I mean, and Mike, you probably see this when you talk as well. When we go out and we talk to the public, uh, those of us who have flown in space, there is a huge amount of latent interest out there. I mean, there. It's just incredible how many people are excited about what's going on in space. So having a way to amplify that in a way that people can relate to it more easily, I think is going to be very powerful. And with the access that Alan's talking about, with the talents that artists have, I, I'm just really excited about the future. Eric, tell us a little bit about the uh, Deep Field Project and what was your inspiration for that? How did this all come about? So it, it started, it, um, it's interesting, it, it started very simply, like you said, it was about the image itself, about the Deep Field image and just being 
stunned by the magnitude of, of it. And I wanted to create music that made me feel that sense of wonder and awe that was in the image. But then when I started to research it and learned about how you and all the other NASA team had to struggle to make this thing happen, right? First to get it up there and then to fix it. That became more, more the DNA of the piece was actually this sense of human aspiration. So ultimately it's, it's a big piece for orchestra and for chorus and for smartphones. The audience plays the smartphones at the end. Um, and now we're adding a, a, a new component to it, which is adding a virtual choir to the end of it. So we'll have thousands and thousands of people from all over the world joining in and also partnering with NASA in, in all kinds of multimedia ways and educational outreach. So are people going to be submitting their voices to your project to be included? Exactly. Oh, Anybody wow. can. And there's no, there's no audition. Everybody who submits their voice. But if it's really included. bad, you'd be like, oh, we didn't get that one. <laughs> that, never, uh, that attachment failed. No, it's amazing. No matter how bad they sing, it all smooths itself out with really? thousands of voices. Yeah. And, and it, as I was saying earlier, if it really goes badly, we can just bring them down to the mix for a bit and then, then bring them back up. <laughs> but every single voice gets in. Wow. Yeah. It makes me think of the golden record. You know that? Um, the record that was put together that was sent out into yeah on the Voyager into uh, space actually. yeah yeah exactly but uh, more of a 21st century version mm -hmm. yeah yeah cool. maybe yeah uh, thank you I mean by the way that Voyager album it's it's a great album it's a good collection of music if an alien ever picks up that record and listens to it there's some good music they're going to think we're cool it starts with Bach and the Beatles are on there too. I mean, it's it's a good. Whoever made the playlist, I think Carl Sagan actually. Chuck, yeah. Chuck Berry's on it. Chuck Berry's on it. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah, it's it's a good collection of music. It's uh, there's um, there's a Spotify playlist actually. You can listen to everything that's on there. Yeah, they also recorded like a lady's brainwaves, like the artistic creator. I think of of the Golden Record. She recorded her her brainwaves and Runyon, and uh, and like you can play them back. And she had just fallen in love at the time. And she said it sounded like firecrackers with going Carl off. With Carl Sagan. With Carl Sagan. Yeah. She had just fallen in love with Carl Sagan. Yeah. So there's a record of that like spinning around right now yeah. out there. That's what we're sending out to the yep. far reaches yep. of the universe. <laughs> Chuck Berry and, and, his and firecrackers <laughs> of love. Yeah. Wow. I think NASA did pretty good on that one. Yeah, it's cool. You know, it's, it's so uh, 70s, Looking right? back on it. Yeah, but still, I'm, that's a pretty good collection they got going. Yeah, definitely. You know, I, today I'm not sure what they would... Uh, Let's not go there. <laughs> I mean, what were we sending? What were we sending? No, that, Beyonce. It would just be like Beyonce. every yeah, Beyonce good. song ever. Yeah, that's yeah. Good. That's <laughs> good. But when you said you were inspired by the Hubble and so on, but is, is it, did you look at images to, to write music that would go along with the images, sort of? Like, like a, music, a, a movie soundtrack. Yeah, I did. Uh, I, I, was, it, was it like that, kind yeah, of uh, looking at, oh, what music's going to go with this mood? Is that the way you came up with A little bit, and I filled my head with, with images actually from the Hubble telescope, but then I drew on first my childhood. I grew up in, in northern Nevada, and so I had these, these dark, dark uh, you know, nights with my telescope, nine years old out there. Uh, so that, and then also I'm a, I'm a big movie buff, and so somewhere in there is the, is the DNA for every movie that I've ever seen about space. So as there was some music that I had that I would, movie soundtracks seem to sometimes go well with the view out the window, and I think... So I think you, your stuff, did your stuff been flown yet? Has that music been flown no, in space? Oh my God. I mean, that would be, uh, that would be good. Yes, it would. Can you, can you guys make that happen? <laughs> can someone make that? No, but I think it's probably just getting, getting the word out. Uh, you know, we were able to take music with us. It'd be interesting, the music that was written for that type of experience, oh, yeah. how it would go along with it. Um, you know, what's interesting so. about that too is I was talking to, to John Grunsfeld and he was mm -hmm. saying that, that someone needs to write a piece about the ascent, right? The, uh -huh. the yeah. eight and a half minutes of the way you described it where yeah. it's just, uh, yeah. you're, you're how, a different how, person How, how would you describe it. that 
that felt like a mine would be like my, my music would be a more of a scream oh, you know, wow. it be, yeah, we're like, ah! so that really would be very artistic that's why we have, we have to get Eric I, yes. I, really, I think that this is important I think we really hit on something here world I, we, and to get an artist like that if you get up there and write a soundtrack that would go at all those experiences you can you know because when you when you watch I'm thinking of when you watch a movie and it's one of these big epic you know big scenes of the world and the music sets the mood Mm-hmm. To get that for for space travel would, would I think would be extraordinary. It would help share the experience. And yeah, absolutely. I think that would be that would be. We need to get you up there somehow. Oh, I'm I'm so in, Mike. See, there we go. All right, so we got. <laughs> I'll carry some of settled. All right. <laughs> also, kind of you bring back memories. I think there's something about music in your memory. Yeah. Right when you when you hear a song. Uh, so there's certain songs that I listen to in space, like uh, Coldplay or U2 or Radiohead. Something like I'll, I'll hear those on Earth, and it'll bring back that memory from space. Um, mm-hmm. For the musician, tell me that during you know, these big rock concerts that when you know, the, the crowd goes crazy when a certain song starts, it's because you know, they're maybe thinking of a memory from when they were in high school or something, that song meant something to them. And so being able to tie the memories of, of your, your life with certain music oh, yeah. is, a, is, is, very, is really cool, actually. You know, when I hear these certain songs, just a couple of them will click and I'll yeah. make me think. Oliver Sacks wrote all about this, right? That, that, yeah, right? The, the part of your brain that's, that stores musical memories is, is one of the most fundamental parts of the brain. And so in, in Alzheimer's patients, for instance, mm-hmm. they lose nearly all function, but music can bring them back almost instantly. There's beautiful videos online where you see people who are nearly catatonic from the Alzheimer's and then the, the song just immediately brings them back to life. It's, it's, uh, those are deep memories you're tapping with that music. You know how close most of us can get to space travel is just like going in an airplane? And like when I'm on an airplane and listening to music, there's a certain melancholy to it. Is there, does that, you talk about it being a majestic experience and, you know, um, but there's a kind of like a little bit of sadness for me when I'm flying. I don't know if that ever happens to astronauts when they're in, in space. No. Nah. No, no, <laughs> it's just excitement. And no, you're pretty happy to be there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And if you ever get bummed, you can look out the window. And that yeah. lifts your spirit. Oh yeah. You're yeah, never you're like, pretty... look how tiny the Earth is. Look how small we are. All no, are. I was like, wow, we are, we're really important. We've got the coolest <laughs> planet around. You know, just feel so little. No, feel really important. Look at this great place we've got. Everyone else is out there with not as cool of a planet. It's really hot or too cold or. Not as interesting. We've got the best place to live on. Wait, so yeah. neither of you, you, you never felt lonely or kind of an, an existential, not crisis, but just a, a sense of, do you know what I mean? Maybe this is why they don't send artists to space. No, uh, you know. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> no, you know, you feel, you don't feel lonely. There's a little bit of a disconnect. For example, when I was flying at the whole 2008-2009 housing crisis thing was going on and you get these reports because we got the news, right? You get these reports about what was going on Earth, but you didn't feel connected to it. It was just so much noise. Like, okay, they're down there doing something. I don't know what they're doing, but you just, so I was not really, you, you're not involved, but it wasn't lonely and it wasn't necessarily totally disconnected. It was just not, it was that they were there and you were here, you know? Yeah. Um, and then I got back to Earth and it's like, oh, wow, there's been a lot going on down here, you know? Because it's, it's not real, right? You're in your own little bubble. I mean, it's in the same sense that time had no meaning on, on space station, and it's probably shuttle too, except you're so busy. But, you know, when you launch a shuttle, they have something called mission elapsed time. And so your clock starts 
at launch. So they count up. So mission day one is 24 hours in. Mission day two is 48 hours in. And then on station, what we use is we use a universal time or Greenwich Mean Time because we have people all over the we have control centers all over the world, and you got to sync everybody up. And so, what time zone do you use? Well, you use Greenwich. And so, I had two watches on. I had mission elapsed time on my first, you know, from the shuttles arrive, we switch over to Greenwich Mean Time, and then I had a third watch, which was Houston time, which was the time that my family and friends were living off of. None of it meant anything. It was just this abstract notion. Uh, of just counting, right? Because we lived by the schedule. When the schedule said go to sleep, well, theoretically you went to sleep. The schedule got up, said get up, you got up. So that's the, that's really what time meant was following the schedule. And so you're in a, you're in sort of an alternate universe of a little bit and how you live. Where you know where are we now with humans in space, and where do you think? Where do you think we're headed? What is that next step? Where, where, you know, where, how do you feel about where we are, what we're accomplishing, and where we're going, where we're going next? So when I, try, yeah, when I try and describe to people what's going on in human spaceflight, I imagine, if you will, you know, the Earth, and imagine this bubble expanding, this bubble of experience expanding off the Earth, right? And so the bubble had expanded to the moon, and then we contracted back into low Earth orbit. So right now, what we've got is a bubble off of the planet into low Earth orbit. Now think of the very leading edge of that bubble is the government, right? Because the government has the, lo the long-term ability to do hard things. And coming in behind the government, you have private industry, and, and, and they're interested in doing things that are not necessarily uh, driven only by the government. Think of the car industry, right? There's not a lot of government engagement in the car industry. So think about as that bubble expands with, uh, with the, the private economy coming in behind it. And so now that bubble is getting ready to expand beyond low Earth orbit out to the moon with the goal of going to Mars. Everyone agrees that Mars is the most interesting place to go within the realm of the technology that we currently have. So the bubble is currently expanding beyond low Earth orbit into the moon and private industry is getting ready to take over in low earth orbit and do some things that are independent of government. Now we're not there yet. They're, right now government is investing with these like these commercial uh, crew companies. Government is investing to help them build capabilities so that they can take those capabilities and do things that aren't government um, founded. And then as we go into cislunar space, to get ready to, to learn what we need to do to go to Mars. And you want to kind of practice in your neighborhood before you go you know, across, across that ocean to Mars. How can we bring private industry along so that as we expand as, and go into Mars that we set, set the private industry up to be sustainable without any government investment as well? So I, I kind of describe this expanding bubble. So right now we're expanding into cislunar space with the goal of expanding into Mars. And that will be, you know, uh, an international effort as well. But it'll be a mix of uh, U.S. government, international, and then our private companies in the U.S. trying to figure out what business plans and strategies that they have for creating an economic footprint there that's not just government reliant. So that's kind of how I describe it. I know, Alan, you're, you're, does that sound like a good model? You, you I love your model. Yeah. I love your model. Yeah. Um, what I think is that uh, we're on the verge of this new decade, the 2020s that I think will be the most exciting decade in the exploration of space, either since the 60s or ever. Um, you know, if you think about it, um, the private industry is taking over a lot of Earth observations. Private industry is taking over robotic missions uh, to help uh, countries that don't have the expertise to travel in space to actually be able to go to the planets. At the same time, private industry is launching on multiple fronts uh, 
um, at least three and maybe as many as five uh, suborbital companies that will be putting very large numbers of people up, thousands of people um, getting the experience in the 2020s. And then we have two commercial crew vehicles coming online. NASA's only buying four seats out of each flight. They can seat six or seven people. So there's some more commercial opportunity. And then you've got the Orion system coming online for deep space exploration. All of this almost simultaneously. This is a tremendous uh, set of capabilities. And I predict before very long, uh, we'll be building a lunar lander because we know we need to go back to the moon in order to engage in exploration before we take that far away journey that Sandy's been talking about to Mars. We need to get the training wheels out and get back to uh, surface operations, uh, descent and landing, things like that. And the moon's the obvious place to go and learn to do that. So I, I just think that the 20s are just going to be the roaring 20s for spaceflight. <laughs> And it has to be a mix, right? There's a lot of debate out there about, oh, private industry should go do everything own and the government needs to go do everything. But it has to be both because the, the companies that are entering into this, this new market in space, you know, their goal is, as a company is to make a profit. They have to eventually, as we get more mature, be able to do that. In the meantime, as the, the government needs to be funding the technology and the capabilities and gaining the knowledge base that's going to help the companies 50 years from now do the things that the companies are doing now. Because you know, the SpaceX's and the Boeing's and the Blue Origins and the X-Cores and the Virgins, they're su being successful because they're, they're able to leverage 50 years of government funding and technology and know-how and experience. And they can just pick that up and go, hey, I can use this and I'm going to create this product X. And so the government has to continue to take that long-term view and figure out what are the technologies and the capabilities that need to be funded to help us go further and let's fund them in such a way that that's public knowledge that then can get translated out. Sandy, I yeah. agree with everything you just said, but I want to add one other example. There are places where private industry is really being the innovator and developing the new technology. A good example is in um, <coughs> observations of the Earth where satellite systems are moving from one, two, three geosynchronous satellites to LEO constellations with dozens and hundreds of eyes so that we can persistently look at phenomena, we can look at bad guys, we can really um, wire the Earth um, uh, to understand what's going on every day. When and you say addition, bad guys, can you just be like, my ex-boyfriend, can you keep an eye on him? <laughs> and can I also ask what other countries are you, you talking about? You know, when you said some countries are relying on, their pri on private companies, to yeah, do their work sure, for them. Sure, I'll do that. Um, mm -hmm. But I wanted to finish the first thought, which yeah. is um, look at the invention, uh, the game-changing invention of reusable launch vehicles, which uh, really is coming about uh, primarily through SpaceX driving the market and driving uh, market forces to get prices down. And uh, look at those uh, vertically landing launch vehicles that the government never really had the resources to go and do, and now they're becoming uh, really the industry standard at, at Blue Origin, at uh, ULA, at, uh, over at the SpaceX, of course, the suborbital industry is doing the same. So not every invention comes out of the government. No, but the Delta Clipper, way back in the 80s, which was sponsored by the government, created some of the fundamental technologies that now SpaceX and Blue and, 
And those guys are using it to great effect to do some great things. So there's still some fundamental research and development that has to be done you know, 20 years out by the government. But I agree, the, the, the government's not good at innovation. So for those of you who yeah. aren't in the aerospace business, what Sandy and I are doing right here is called violent agreement. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I agree. Yeah. And basically, you know, actually, interesting enough, the, the, the debate that we're having, in which we're, we have violent agreement, is a debate that's mirrored these days all over the aerospace Absolutely. industry. This, it's a time this of is, change. This is an extremely dynamic time. It's really exciting. Um, and I think we still have another 10 or 15 years of it because this is so hard. I, you know, We're going to see some successes and it's going to encourage some more people and it, we, it's really going to be fun in the aerospace industry. No, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm like, oh, yeah, let's go back to that. <laughs> yeah, we yeah. always hear about well, Russia are, and America. There are lots of great examples of, um, of American aerospace industry helping with um, uh, foreign countries that don't have the capability. Mm -hmm. One good example is we're launching a lot of other people's satellites when they don't have their own rockets. Another example is uh, we in the civil space world in NASA carry experiments to the planets for other countries, <laughs> Spain and uh, many European countries. And they Asian just like countries. kick in money for gas. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> How does it work? Uh, we actually it doesn't. It's usually on a no exchange of funds basis. Wow. Um, so we get the advantage of of both um, helping them learn to be spacefaring nations, and we get the data sets that come out. We share them with them, uh, and uh, we bring them along for the ride. And that's worked very successfully. But in the communications satellite industry, over, uh, I believe it's uh, something north of 60 or 70 countries now have communications satellites of their own, but they're buying them from companies like Boeing. So yeah. this is really proliferating. What is our greatest challenge in commercial spaceflight? That's where I really like what you said about this roaring 20s. Yeah. I think this, this is the, like the catchphrase of the, of at least the day, maybe more. So I really like mm -hmm. that we're coming up on the roaring 20s. What, what, is our, what is our biggest challenge or our biggest obstacle, do you think, that's, that we need to overcome? Well, first, thank you for the compliment about the phrase. It's um, a good phrase. You, you, don't, you don't know it, but I actually tweeted today that the best phrase of the day was yours when you said, the earth is so beautiful, it was made to be seen from the outside, from space. Really? I tweeted that as the phrase of the day. Yeah, that's pretty good, too. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, touche. So, so I think the first, the first big challenge for commercial spaceflight was the giggle factor. People didn't believe uh, a decade ago when there were early adopters that any of this would ever really happen, that they would have the, the, the financial resources or the resolve to withstand failures or the technical depth to do spaceflight, which is hard. And I think we've gotten past that. And I think the new challenge, because there's so much commercial human spaceflight that's about to start happening, is gonna be one that we talked about earlier today, which is we've gotta get past this little cul-de-sac we've been in for a few decades um, in spaceflight that's unlike any other form of transportation where you can't have accidents. You know, the one fact that every airline CEO uh, knows in common is that there's another accident coming. They just don't know when, and they're trying to postpone it, but they know there's inevitably somewhere in the world gonna be another airplane that goes down. And when airplanes do go down, you don't see airplanes go out of business, you don't see them stop operations, you don't see the whole industry shut down. And in spaceflight, I think that's our next hurdle, is to, because we're gonna, you know, 20s aviation was, 1920s aviation was very unsafe compared to today's standards. Mm -hmm. uh, and today's uh, commercial spaceflight is, is gonna be um, 
safer than the old days when our technology was more primitive, but more dangerous probably than flying on commercial airliners. I think everybody would agree with that. We're going to go through an era where flights are going to go down, people are going to get injured, people are going to get killed, and we got to make sure that the public and the financial community understands that that's just part of the deal because of the nature of the business. It's a transportation business. Every transportation business has accidents. Even mature ones like the boating industry has accidents. And space flight's not going to be any different. And we got to get through that and then uh, uh, move to a better place where it just becomes normalized like the other parts of transportation business. That's my view of the big challenge. Sandy? Well, I guess the other thing that, and this is, I wouldn't call it a challenge, but I would say it's an ongoing process, and that's developing the, the economic sphere and low, you know, low Earth orbit specifically. You know, the space station is a national lab, and there's an organization that facilitates uh, projects getting to space station, and the more people we can get up there so they can understand the power of, of microgravity and the things that you can do in microgravity from a, you know, a manufacturing or a research or a product development viewpoint, the better off we're going to be. It just it, that's, takes a little bit time to do that, and we're using the station for that, but we need to really keep accelerating that so that um, more and more people will understand the, the abilities of what they could be doing in space. So these, these, you know, these, there's a couple of ideas out there about having a private space station, you know, the, the ideas of um, you know, a, a, a pharmaceutical company going to SpaceX or Boeing and saying, hey, we want five days in your capsule on orbit. You know, we got to build the awareness of that and, and help educate people about that environment so they see that advantage to them. And that's an ongoing process. It just takes time right now. Yeah. One thing that I'm, if you don't mind me adding, just one more thought. One thing I'm really excited about you know, is uh, uh, with the expansion of human spaceflight, how we're going to be able to lower costs. Mm -hmm. You know, you did a lot of in-flight maintenance, I suspect, on the, the flights that you were flying. For space And you station. were up there repairing. That was your whole job, was to repair a very valuable spacecraft. You know, one of the odd things about space science, compared to every other branch of science, is that because it was expensive and we couldn't uh, put people in space easily in the beginning, in the 50s and 60s, we had to learn to automate everything. But automation is expensive, particularly automation that's going to work. And you know, if automation was so wonderful, and, uh, and if it was really economically the way to go, every university laboratory would be automated. And every uh, ge geological field expedition looking for energy sources would have robots trundling around. And every NOAA expedition with ships would be completely automated. But in fact, we, we have people in all those circumstances because it just works better. And with the advent of these new avenues to put more people in space, we're going to be able to move space science to a place where the researcher can go along with their experiment, just as if they were in a laboratory environment or flying on a NASA airplane. And that's going to lower costs because we can get rid of all that automation expense and all that risk of reliability that goes when you have to automate things. And I think that's an unanticipated benefit that's going to really uh, yield uh, uh, back very, very well in the coming years. I'm so, that's such a cool thing to hear because I, uh, like in most other industries, it's going the other way, <laughs> right? But like you get, it, you, if you put like even really good robot in space, 
Isn't it like they find it hard to work with people? So they like bash into people and they're kind of like, don't have a clue how to act. We discourage that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if there's anything I've learned from watching movies, it's that robots in space is a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. Always. So that's a, that's a really cool, exciting idea that there's going to be more people because like we need them, not just like rich people who want to have an adventure. Keep an eye on those robots. <laughs> It would be funny if they were like, we're going to go. <laughs> you know what, we'll, be, we'll see you later. Thanks so much. You talked a little bit about it earlier. You said uh, going to Mars is where we want to go, the moon. If, if can you expand a little bit more on where, where, where do you, where's our next destination? How are we going to fit all this together? We keep talking about going places, and we haven't gone anywhere, like beyond low Earth orbit with people for a while. Yeah. Where, where, what's your vision here? Well, my vision is human expansion across the solar system. There's so many places uh, to go, and there's so many, not just scientifically interesting places, but places with real economic resources, from mining the asteroids uh, to uh, producing fuel and fuel depots for the expansion of human civilization across the solar system, you know, uh, mining ice, which it turns out to be very common in the asteroids, in addition to at the lunar poles. Uh, and then... Did you say mi mining ice? Mining ice. For what? Because we you know can, it's made out of, you know, it's made, it's out, made of out of water. <laughs> which, we can, which is in turn made out of hydrogen and oxygen, mm. which equals stuff to breathe, stuff to drink, and stuff to fuel rockets. Oh, cool. So it's pretty useful stuff. Um, but I think even the outer solar system um, is going to be within this century, within the reach of human spaceflight. And I'm looking forward to that base on Pluto. I don't know about how, yeah. show of hands, <laughs> the base on Pluto, our next objective. That's Pluto a little far. It's a little far. Pluto the no. Pluto the planet that your boss has a little problem with. But we'll go. We'll go there some other day. But but um, no, seriously. He's I, gonna Neil deGrasse Tyson's gonna edit out this whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but to continue, I think that in terms of destinations, once we develop the basic capability for interplanetary flight with humans, you'll see a proliferation across the solar system. The same way that it took us a rocky road to learned to do it with robots in the 60s and 70s, but then we went everywhere over the next couple decades because we had the basic capability to do guidance and nav and comm and ops at long distances. And I think that um, uh, we'll see the same thing with human spaceflight and maybe even commercially. Yeah, actually, the, the visionaries, the really long-term thinkers are thinking along the lines uh, that Alan mentioned where, you know, Mars right now is the horizon goal. And the reason why that's the horizon goal is because we go to Mars and we learn how to do um, uh, operations far, far away from the Earth and figure out how to minimize the logistics stream and figure out how to manage in an, a, a really hostile environment because really the more interesting goal is Europa, you know, for example, or beyond. And so the really visionary are people like, okay, you know, we think about go to the moon, learn how to do stuff so you can go to Mars. They're thinking, okay, we're going to go to Mars, learn how to do stuff so we can go to Europa. Right, so there's different, depending upon what your time frame is and how visionary you want to be, there's a whole cascading series of leaps out into the solar system. But the, I think the travel is the hard part. Mars is reasonable with our current technologies and propulsion-wise to, to go beyond is, is sort of a, a steep mountain to climb, I think. Well, I think we'll learn to go faster. Yeah, uh, we have to. We, we have to develop more of the Star Trek type uh, propulsion systems, particularly uh, a high power ion propulsion. We've done a lot of low power ion propulsion. Um, but if we move to bigger power systems, then we can afford to go a lot faster. Yeah. 
It's an interesting point because all the things, we, we can solve a lot of problems, right? We might be able to figure out a way to protect people from radiation and micrometeorites and the communicate, but it's still the time, right? And the reason why Mars, Mars is probably at the extent of how long we could stay out there, we can get to with our current technology. Where, 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 where are we on getting there faster? Because it's been a while, right? We had propellers and then jets and rockets and where are we? He's mentioned ion engine. Yeah, when is, know, how realistic is this? Uh, how close are well, we? First, what, what's coming with that? Well, in human spaceflight, we haven't used um, ion propulsion uh, the way that we have in robotic spaceflight. But beginning in the 1990s, we started to have technology development missions. Uh, the first one was called Deep Space One in the New Millennium Program. And it worked uh, well enough that we could then adapt it and start using it in missions like Dawn, which has now orbited both Vesta and Ceres. Uh, now the Psyche mission that's just been selected and others. So that we're routinely using um, ion propulsion, which is about 10 times as uh, efficient uh, as the very best chemical propulsion systems. But they're always low thrust because time of flight is not really the consideration. When we develop the ability to put tens of kilowatts and hundreds of kilowatts into those ion propulsion systems, we'll be able to drive to Mars in a matter of weeks. We'll be able to drive out to distances like the asteroid belt and off to Jupiter and Europa and places like that in the kind of time scales we now talk about to go to Mars, maybe a year. Yeah, and so the, the science uh, and technology development area of NASA, they're working on various stages of some of this electric propulsion and some of these, these new propulsion techniques. But this is sort of the lead types of technology development the government has to do in order to get us there. There's a lot of basic research people are doing, and they've got to worry about the scale-up issue. So that work's going on. It's just going to take time to get there. I and wonder, then, in the meantime, if you could just like make astronauts younger, like eventually send some toddlers up there so that by the time they reach, that they're like cool millennials. Babies in space? <laughs> Little babies That sounds more dangerous than robots. <laughs> it was just an idea. <laughs> Little cuties. Well, we could probably go on all night, uh, but they're going to kick us out, I think. So uh, if, if we can, if we can maybe go down a line here, a closing thought. I mean, this is very positive, exciting things. I think whoever's listening, I'm going to say the world, but whoever's listening to this, what message do you want to tell them about the, the future, all, all of you, of what's coming up? What are you looking forward to? What do you think is going to happen? What, what can we look forward to? What's the promising thing coming? Mm -hmm. um, I'm Californian at heart, which means that I'm an eternal optimist. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have, I believe that human beings are fundamentally good, that they will always choose the best way eventually, given enough time. And so hearing, especially all of you talk about the possibilities for space travel, for exploration, which to me, as a side note, exploration is the most human endeavor there is. Nothing makes us more human than, than reaching for the unknown, striving for something that we can't see. Uh, it gives me great hope for humanity. I'm, I'm proud to be a human. Awesome. So I would leave you with, um, please pay attention to what's gonna be happening in the space program in the next two or three years. We've got a lot of really exciting things going on. We've got the SLS and Orion that are gonna launch. We've got Boeing and SpaceX who are gonna be creating these uh, and launching these commercial crew vehicles to space. We've got Virgin and uh, Blue Origin that are gonna be launching people suborbitally. And we've got the James Webb Space Telescope that's gonna be launching in, in a few couple of years and uh, creating photography to rival 
Hubble's. All of this is just going to explode into the public consciousness in the next two or three years. So I'm very excited about that, and um, we want to bring everybody in the public along with us on this amazing journey. Well, that was really good. She said what I wanted to say. <laughs> so I'll, I'll add this. Uh, you know, Apollo's greatest spinoff uh, probably wasn't Teflon. Uh, and, it, and it probably wasn't a lot of the other things that the agency actually, uh, that NASA actually touted as spinoffs, even micro-miniaturization of electronics. I think Apollo's greatest spinoff were all those kids that got turned on to tech careers that went out and fueled the economy. And when you listen to what Sandy just said about, about uh, uh, suborbital space flight and about um, exploration with humans and the expansion across the solar system and all those great things that we're just now on the verge of, I think that's going to really fuel the economy of the 30s and 40s with kids that are inspired to tech careers. So when I talk about the roaring 20s and what we're going to see in spaceflight, that's going to feed right into the 30s and 40s and 50s. And so I'll close with just three words. Fasten your seatbelts. Very cool. <laughs> um, it's been such a fun panel, and thank you for having me. And I just want to reiterate, we need more babies in space. We need more Rihanna in space. <laughs> and over to you, Mike. Well, I, it's, it's been a pleasure. It, it gives me great hope uh, for everything everybody said, and it's just been a pleasure to be here with all of you, Alan, Sandy, Eric, and Maeve, and to all of you in the audience here at the Explorers Club, and to all of you listening or watching or wherever we're getting to you, uh, thank you for listening. Uh, Star Talk All-Stars from the Explorers Club Space Stories, signing off. Thanks for listening. Thank you.